Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, chapters 17 and 18, from The Return of Tarzan. And now, chapter 17, The White Chief of the Waziri. When the eyes of the black Mayanuma savage fell upon the strange apparition that confronted him with menacing knife, they went wide in horror. He forgot the gun within his hands. He even forgot to cry out. His one thought was to escape this fearsome-looking white savage, this giant of a man upon whose massive rolling muscles and mighty chest the flickering firelight played. But before he could turn, Tarzan was upon him, and then the sentry thought to scream for aid, but it was too late. A great hand was upon his windpipe, and he was being borne to the earth. He battled furiously, but futilely, against the grim tenacity of a bulldog whose awful fingers were clinging to his throat. Swiftly and surely life was being choked from him. His eyes bulged, his tongue protruded, his face turned to a ghastly purplish hue. There was a convulsive tremor of the stiffening muscles, and the Mayanuma sentry lay quite still. The ape-man threw the body across one of his broad shoulders, and, gathering up the fellow's gun, trotted silently up the sleeping village street toward the tree that gave him such easy ingress to the palisaded village. He bore the dead sentry into the midst of the leafy maze above. First he stripped the body of cartridge belt and such ornaments as he craved, wedging it into a convenient crotch, while his nimble fingers ran over it in search of the loot he could not plainly see in the dark. When he had finished he took the gun that had belonged to the man, and walked far out upon a limb, from the end of which he could obtain a better view of the huts. Drawing a careful bead on the beehive structure in which he knew the chief Arabs to be, he pulled the trigger. Almost instantly there was an answering groan. Tarzan smiled. He had made another lucky hit. Following the shot, there was a moment's silence in the camp, and then Mayanuma and Arab came pouring forth from the huts like a swarm of angry hornets. But if the truth were known, they were even more frightened than they were angry. The strain of the preceding day had wrought upon the fears of both black and white, and now this single shot in the night conjured all manner of terrible conjectures in their terrified minds. When they discovered that their sentry had disappeared, their fears were in no way allayed, and as though to bolster their courage by warlike actions, they began to fire rapidly at the barred gates of the village, although no enemy was in sight. Tarzan took advantage of the deafening roar of this fusillade to fire into the mob beneath him. No one heard his shot above the din of rattling musketry in the street, but some who were standing close saw one of their number crumple suddenly to the earth. When they leaned over him, he was dead. They were panic-stricken, and it took all the brutal authority of the Arabs to keep the Mayanuma from rushing helter-skelter into the jungle, anywhere to escape from this terrible village. After a time they commenced to quiet down, and as no further mysterious deaths occurred among them, they took heart again. But it was a short-lived respite, for just as they had concluded that they would not be disturbed again, Tarzan gave voice to a weird moan, and as the raiders looked up in the direction from which the sound seemed to come, the ape-man, who stood swinging the dead body of the sentry gently to and fro, suddenly shot the corpse far out above their heads. With howls of alarm, the throng broke in all directions to escape this new and terrible creature who seemed to be springing upon them. To their fear-distorted imaginations, the body of the sentry, falling with wide-sprawled arms and legs, assumed the likeness of a great beast of prey. In their anxiety to escape, many of them scaled the palisade walls trying to get out, while others tore down the bars from the gates and rushed madly across the clearing toward the jungle. 
For a time, no one turned back toward the thing that had frightened them, but Tarzan knew that they would in a moment, and when they discovered that it was but the dead body of their sentry, while they would doubtless be still further terrified, he had a rather definite idea as to what they would do, and so he faded silently away toward the south, taking the moonlit upper terrace back toward the camp of the Waziri. Presently one of the Arabs turned and saw that the thing that had leaped from the tree upon them lay still and quiet where it had fallen in the center of the village street. Cautiously he crept back toward it until he saw that it was but a man. A moment later he was beside the figure, and then another had recognized it as the corpse of the Mayanuma who had stood on guard at the village gate. His companions rapidly gathered around at his call, and after a moment's excited conversation they did precisely what Tarzan had reasoned that they would. Raising their guns to their shoulders, they poured volley after volley into the tree from which the corpse had been thrown. Had Tarzan remained there, he would have been riddled by a hundred bullets. When the Arabs in Mayanuma discovered that the only marks of violence upon the body of their dead comrade were giant fingerprints upon his swollen throat, they were again thrown into deeper apprehension and despair. That they were not even safe within a palisaded village as night came came as a distinct shock to them. That an enemy could enter into the midst of their camp and kill their sentry with bare hands seemed outside the bounds of reason. And so the superstitious Mayanuma commenced to attribute their ill luck to supernatural causes. Nor were the Arabs able to offer any better explanation. With at least fifty of their number flying through the black jungle, and without the slightest knowledge of when their uncanny foemen might resume the cold-blooded slaughter they had commenced, it was a desperate band of cutthroats that waited sleeplessly for the dawn. Only on the promise of the Arabs that they would leave the village at daybreak and hasten onward toward their own land would the remaining Mayanuma consent to stay at the village a moment longer. Not even fear of their cruel masters was sufficient to overcome this new terror. And so it was that when Tarzan and his warriors returned to the attack the next morning, they found the raiders prepared to march out of the village. The Mayanuma were laden with stolen ivory. As Tarzan saw it, he grinned, for he knew that they would not carry it far. Then he saw something which caused him anxiety. A number of the Mayanuma were lighting torches in the remnant of the campfire. They were about to set the village on fire. Tarzan was perched in a tall tree some hundred yards from the palisade. Making a trumpet of his hands, he called loudly in the Arab tongue, "'Do not fire the huts, or we shall kill you all.' A dozen times he repeated it. The Mayanuma hesitated. Then one of them flung his torch into the campfire. The others were about to do the same when an Arab sprung upon them with a stick, beating them toward the huts. Tarzan could see that he was commanding them to fire the little thatched dwellings. Then he stood erect upon the swaying branch a hundred feet above the ground, and raising one of the Arab guns to his shoulder, took careful aim and fired. With the report, the Arab who was urging on his men to burn the village fell in his tracks, and the Mayanuma threw away their torches and fled from the village. The last Tarzan saw of them they were racing toward the jungle, while their former masters knelt upon the ground and fired at them. But however angry the Arabs might have been at the insubordination of their slaves, they were at least convinced that it would be the better part of wisdom to forego the pleasure of firing the village that had given them two such nasty receptions. In their hearts, however, they swore to return again with such force as would enable them to sweep the entire country for miles around, until no vestige of human life remained. They looked in vain for the owner of the voice which had frightened off the men who had been detailed to put the torch to the huts, 
but not even the keenest eye among them had been able to locate him. They had seen the puff of smoke from the tree following the shot that brought down the Arab, but, though a volley had immediately been loosed into its foliage, there had been no indication that it had been effective. Tarzan was too intelligent to be caught in any such trap, and so the report of his shot had scarcely died away before the ape-man was on the ground and racing for another tree a hundred yards away. Here he again found a suitable perch from which he could watch the preparations of the raiders. It occurred to him that he might have considerable more fun with them, so again he called to them through his improvised trumpet. "'Leave the ivory!' he cried. "'Leave the ivory! Dead men have no use for ivory!' Some of the Mayanuma started to lay down their loads, but this was altogether too much for the avaricious Arabs. With loud shouts and curses, they aimed their guns full upon the bearers, threatening instant death to any who might lay down his load. They could give up firing the village, but the thought of abandoning this enormous fortune in ivory was quite beyond their conception. Better death than that. And so they marched out of the village of the Waziri, and on the shoulders of their slaves was the ivory ransom of a score of kings. Toward the north they marched, back toward their savage settlement in the wild and unknown country which lies back from the Congo in the uttermost depths of the great forest, and on the other side of them traveled an invisible and relentless foe. Under Tarzan's guidance, the black Waziri warriors stationed themselves along the trail on either side in the densest underbrush. They stood at far intervals, and as the column passed, a single arrow or a heavy spear, well aimed, would pierce a Mayanuma or an Arab. Then the Waziri would melt into the distance and run ahead to take his stand further on. They did not strike unless success was sure and the danger of detection almost nothing, and so the arrows and the spears were few and far between. But so persistent and inevitable that the slow-moving column of heavy-laden raiders was in a constant state of panic, panic at the uncertainty of who the next man would be to fall, and when. It was with the greatest difficulty that the Arabs prevented their men a dozen times from throwing away their burdens and fleeing like frightened rabbits up the trail toward the north. And so the day wore on, a frightful nightmare of a day for the raiders, a day of weary but well-repaid work for the Raziri. At night the Arabs constructed a rude boma in a little clearing by a river, and went into camp. At intervals during the night a rifle would bark close above their heads, and one of the dozen sentries which they now had posted would tumble to the ground. Such a condition was insupportable, for they saw that by means of these hideous tactics they would be completely wiped out, one by one, without inflicting a single death upon their enemy. But yet, with the persistent avariciousness of the white man, the Arabs clung to their loot, and when morning came, forced the demoralized Manayuma to take up their burdens of death and stagger on into the jungle. For three days the withering column kept up its frightful march. Each hour was marked by its deadly arrow or cruel spear. The nights were made hideous by the barking of the invisible gun that made sentry duty equivalent to a death sentence. On the morning of the fourth day, the Arabs were compelled to shoot two of their blacks before they could compel the balance to take up the hated ivory, and as they did so a voice rang out, clear and strong, from the jungle. "'Today you die, O Manayuma, unless you lay down the ivory. Fall upon your cruel masters and kill them. You have guns. Why do you not use them? Kill the Arabs, and we will not harm you. We will take you back to our village and feed you, and lead you out of our country in safety and in peace. Lay down the ivory, and fall upon your masters, 
"'We will help you. "'Else you die.' "'As the voice died down, "'the raider stood as though turned to stone. "'The Arabs eyed their Manayuma slaves. "'The slaves looked first at one "'and then the other of their fellows, "'and then at another. "'They were but waiting for someone "'to take the initiative. "'There were but some thirty Arabs left "'and about one hundred and fifty blacks. "'All were armed. "'Even those who were acting as porters "'had their rifles slung across their backs. "'The Arabs drew together.' The sheik ordered the Manayuma to take up the march, and as he spoke he cocked his rifle and raised it. But at the same instant one of the blacks threw down his load, and snatching his rifle from his back, fired point-blank at the group of Arabs. In an instant the camp was a cursing, howling mass of demons, fighting with guns and knives and pistols. The Arabs stood together and defended their lives valiantly, but with the rain of lead that poured upon them from their own slaves— and the shower of arrows and spears which now leaped from the surrounding jungle aimed solely at them, there was little question from the first what the outcome would be. In ten minutes from the time the first porter had thrown down his load, the last of the Arabs lay dead. When the firing had ceased, Tarzan spoke again to the Manayuma. "'Take up our ivory, and return it to our village, from whence you stole it, and we shall not harm you.' For a moment the Manayuma hesitated." They had no stomach to retrace that difficult three days' trail. They talked together in low whispers, and one turned toward the jungle, calling aloud to the voice that had spoken to them from out of the foliage. "'How do we know that when you have us in your village you will not kill us all?' he asked. "'You do not know,' replied Tarzan. "'Other than that we have promised not to harm you if you will return our ivory to us. But this you do know.' "'that it lies within our power to kill you all "'if you do not return as we direct. "'And are we not more likely to do so if you anger us "'than if you do as we bid?' "'Who are you that speaks the tongue of our Arab masters?' "'cried the Manayuma spokesman. "'Let us see you, and then we shall give you our answer.' "'Tarzan stepped out of the jungle a dozen paces from them. "'Look,' he said. "'When they saw that he was white, they were filled with awe, "'for never had they seen a white savage before.' "'and that his great muscles and giant frame "'they were struck with wonder and admiration. "'You may trust me,' said Tarzan, "'so long as you do as I tell you, "'and harm none of my people. "'We shall do you no hurt. "'Will you take up our ivory "'and return in peace to our village, "'or shall we follow you along your trail "'toward the north as we have followed "'for the past three days?' "'The recollection of the hard days "'that had just passed was the thing "'that finally decided the Mayanuma, "'and so, after a short conference, they took up their burdens and set off to retrace their steps toward the village of the Waziri. At the end of the third day they marched into the village gate and were greeted by the survivors of the recent massacre, to whom Tarzan had sent a messenger in their temporary camp to the south on the day that the raiders had quitted the village, telling them that they might return in safety. It took all the mastery and persuasion that Tarzan possessed to prevent the Waziri falling upon the Mayanuma tooth and nail and tearing them to pieces. But when he had explained that he had given his word that they would not be molested if they carried the ivory back to the spot from which they had stolen it, and had further impressed upon his people that they owed their entire victory to him, they finally acceded to his demands, and allowed the cannibals to rest in peace within their palisade. That night the village warriors held a big palaver to celebrate their victories, and to choose a new chief. Since old Waziri's death, Tarzan had been directing the warriors in battle, and the temporary command had been tacitly conceded to him. There had been no time to choose a new chief from among their own member, and, in fact, 
so remarkably successful had they been under the ape man's generalship that they had no wish to delegate the supreme authority to another for fear that what they had already gained might be lost. They had so recently seen the results of running counter to this savage white man's advice in the disastrous charge ordered by Waziri, in which he himself had died, that it had not been difficult for them to accept Tarzan's authority as final. The principal warriors sat in a circle about a small fire to discuss the relative merits of whomever might be suggested as old Waziri's successor. It was Busuli who spoke first. Since Waziri is dead, leaving no son, there is but one among us whom we know from experience is fitted to make us a good king. There is only one who has proved that he can successfully lead us against the guns of the white man and bring us easy victory without the loss of a single life. There is only one, and that is the white man who has led us for the past few days. And Busuli sprang to his feet, and with uplifted spear and half-bent, crouching body, commenced to dance slowly about Tarzan, chanting in tune to his steps, Waziri, king of the Waziri, Waziri, killer of Arabs, Waziri, king of the Waziri. One by one the other warriors signified their acceptance of Tarzan as their king by joining in the solemn dance. The women came and squatted about the rim of the circle, beating upon tom-toms, clapping their hands in time to the steps of the dancers, and joining in the chant of the warriors. In the center of the circle sat Tarzan of the Apes, Waziri, king of the Waziri, for, like his predecessor, he was to take the name of his tribe as his own. Faster and faster grew the pace of the dancers, louder and louder their wild and savage shouts. The women rose and fell in unison, shrieking now at the tops of their voices. The spears were brandishing fiercely, and as the dancers stooped down and beat their shields upon the hard-tramped earth of the village street, the whole sight was as terribly primeval and savage as though it were being staged in the dim dawn of humanity, countless ages in the past. As the excitement waxed, the ape-man sprang to his feet and joined in the wild ceremony. In the center of the circle of glittering black bodies, he leaped and roared and shook his heavy spear in the same mad abandon that had thralled his fellow savages. The last remnant of his civilization was forgotten. He was a primitive man to the fullest now, reveling in the freedom of the fierce, wild life he loved, gloating in his kingship, moving among these wild blacks. If Olga de Cowd had but seen him then, could she have recognized the well-dressed, quiet young man whose well-bred face and irreproachable manners had so captivated her but a few short months ago? And Jane Porter, would she still have loved this savage warrior chieftain, dancing naked among his naked savage subjects? And Darnot, could Darnot have believed that this was the same man he had introduced into half a dozen of the most select clubs in Paris? What would his fellow peers in the House of Lords have said had one pointed to this dancing giant, with his barbaric headdress and his metal ornaments, and said, There, my lords, is John Clayton, Lord Greystoke. And so Tarzan of the Apes came into a real kinship among men. Slowly but surely was he following the evolution of his ancestors, for had he not started at the very bottom? We'll return to Chapter 18, right after these sponsor messages. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, Chapter 18, The Lottery of Death. Jane Porter had been the first of those in the lifeboat to awaken the morning after the wreck of the Lady Alice. The other members of the party were asleep upon the thwarts or huddled in cramped positions in the bottom of the boat. When the girl realized that they had become separated from the other boats, she was filled with alarm. The sense of utter loneliness and helplessness which the vast expanse of deserted ocean aroused in her was so depressing that, from the first, contemplation of the future held not the slightest ray of promise for her. She was confident that they were lost, lost beyond possibility of succor. Presently Clayton awoke. It was several minutes before he could gather his senses sufficiently to realize where he was, or recall the disaster of the previous night. Finally his bewildered eyes fell upon the girl. "'Jane!' he cried. "'Thank God that we're together!' "'Look!' said the girl dully, indicating the horizon with an apathetic gesture. "'We are all alone.' Clayton scanned the water in every direction. "'Where can they be?' he cried. "'They cannot have gone down, for there has been no sea, "'and they were afloat after the yacht sank. "'I saw them all.' "'He awoke the other members of the party "'and explained their plight. "'It's just as well that the boats are scattered, sir,' "'said one of the sailors. "'They are all provisioned so that they do not need each other on that score, "'and should a storm blow up they could be of no service to one another "'even if they were together. "'But scattered about the ocean,' "'there's a much better chance that at least one will be picked up, "'and then a search will be at once started for the others. "'Were we together, there would be but one chance of rescue, "'where now there may be four. "'They saw the wisdom of his philosophy and were cheered by it, "'but their joy was short-lived, "'for when it was decided that they should row steadily toward the east and the continent, "'it was discovered that the sailors who had been at the only two oars "'with which the boat had been provided,' had fallen asleep at their work and allowed both to slip into the sea, nor were they in sight anywhere upon the water. During the angry words and recriminations which followed, the sailors nearly came to blows, but Clayton succeeded in quieting them, though a moment later Monsieur Thuran almost precipitated another row by making a nasty remark about the stupidity of all Englishmen, and especially English sailors. "'Come, come, mates,' spoke up one of the men. "'Tompkins, who had taken no part in the altercation. "'Shooting off our bloomin' mugs won't get us nothing. "'As spider air said before, "'we're all bloody well be picked up anyways. "'So what's the use of squabbling? "'Let's eat,' says I. "'That's not a bad idea,' said Monsieur Thuran, "'and then turning to the third sailor, Wilson, he said, "'Pass one of those tins aft, my good man.' "'Fetch it yourself,' retorted Wilson sullenly. "'I ain't taking orders from no furriner.' "'You ain't captain of this ship.' "'The result was that Clayton himself had to get the tin, "'and then another angry altercation ensued "'when one of the sailors accused Clayton and Monsieur Thuran "'of conspiring to control the provisions "'so that they could have the lion's share. "'Someone should take command of this boat,' "'spoke up Jane Porter, 
thoroughly disgusted with the disgraceful wrangling that had marked the very opening of a forced companionship that might last for many days. It is terrible enough to be alone in a frail boat on the Atlantic, without having the added misery and danger of constant bickering and brawling among the members of our party. You men should elect a leader, and then abide by his decisions in all matters. There is greater need for strict discipline here than there is upon a well-ordered ship." She had hoped before she voiced her sentiments that it would not be necessary for her to enter into the transaction at all, for she believed that Clayton was amply able to cope with every emergency. But she had to admit that so far, at least, he had shown no greater promise of successfully handling the situation than any of the others. Though he had at least refrained from adding in any way to the unpleasantness, even going so far as to give up the tin to the sailors when they objected to its being opened by him. The girl's words temporarily quieted the men, and finally it was decided that the two kegs of water and the four tins of food should be divided into two parts, one half going forward to the three sailors to do with as they saw best, and the balance aft to the three passengers. Thus was the little company divided into two camps, and when the provisions had been apportioned, each immediately set to work to open and distribute food and water. The sailors were the first to get one of the tins of food open, and their curses of rage and disappointment caused Clayton to ask what the trouble might be. Trouble! shrieked Spider. Trouble! It's worse than trouble! It's death! This tin's full of coal oil! Hastily now, Clayton and Monsieur Thuran tore open one of theirs, only to learn the hideous truth that it also contained not food, but coal oil. One after another, the four tins on board were opened and as the contents of each became known, howls of anger announced the grim truth. There was not an ounce of food upon the boat. "'Well, thank God it wasn't the water,' cried Tompkins. "'It's easier to get along without food than it is without water. We can eat our shoes if worse comes to worse, but we can't drink them.' As he spoke, Wilson had been boring a hole in one of the water kegs, and as Spider held a tin cap, he tilted the keg to pour a draft of the precious fluid." A thin stream of blackish, dry particles filtered slowly through the tiny aperture into the bottom of the cup. With a groan, Wilson dropped the keg and sat staring at the dry stuff in the cup, speechless with horror. "'The kegs are filled with gunpowder,' said Spider, in a low tone, turning to those aft. And so it proved when the last had been opened. "'Coal, oil, and gunpowder?' cried Monsieur Thuran. "'Sapristi! What the diet for shipwrecked mariners!' With the full knowledge that there was neither food nor water on board, the pangs of hunger and thirst became immediately aggravated. And so on the first day of their tragic adventure, real suffering commenced in grim earnest, and the full horrors of shipwreck were upon them. As the days passed, conditions became horrible. Aching eyes scanned the horizon day and night until the weak and weary watchers would sink exhausted to the bottom of the boat, and there rest in dream-disturbed slumber a moment's respite from the horrors of the waking reality. The sailors, goaded by the remorseless pangs of hunger, had eaten their leather belts, their shoes, the sweatbands from their caps, although both Clayton and Monsieur Thuran had done their best to convince them that these would only add to the suffering they were enduring. Weak and hopeless, the entire party lay beneath the pitiless tropic sun, with parched lips and swollen tongues, waiting for the death they were beginning to crave. The intense suffering of the first few days had become deadened for the three passengers who had eaten nothing but the agony of the sailors was pitiful, as their weak and impoverished stomachs attempted to cope with the bits of leather with which they had filled them. 
Tompkins was the first to succumb. Just a week from the day the Lady Alice went down, that sailor died horribly in frightful convulsions. For hours his contorted and hideous features lay grinning back at those in the stern of the little boat, until Jane Potter could endure the sight no longer. "'Can you not drop his body overboard, William?' she asked. Clayton rose and staggered toward the corpse. The two remaining sailors eyed him with a strange, baleful light in their sunken orbs. Feudally the Englishman tried to lift the corpse over the side of the boat, but his strength was not equal to the task. "'Lend me a hand here, please,' he said to Wilson, who lay nearest him. "'What do you want to throw him over for?' questioned the sailor, in a querulous voice. "'We've got to before we're too weak to do it,' replied Clayton. "'He'd be awful by tomorrow, after a day under that broiling sun.' "'Better leave well enough alone,' grumbled Wilson. "'We may need him before tomorrow.' Slowly the meaning of the man's words percolated into Clayton's understanding. At last he realized the fellow's reason for objecting to the disposal of the dead man. "'Good God!' "'whispered Clayton in a horrified tone. "'You don't mean—' "'Why not?' growled Wilson. "'Ain't we got to live? "'He's dead,' he added, "'jerking his thumb in the direction of the corpse. "'He won't care.' "'Come here, Thoran,' said Clayton, "'turning toward the Russian. "'We'll have something worse than death aboard us "'if we don't get rid of this body before dark.' "'Wilson staggered up menacingly "'to prevent the contemplated act, "'but when his comrade, Spider, took sides with Clayton and Monsieur Thuran, he gave up, and sat eyeing the corpse hungrily as the three men, by combining their efforts, succeeded in rolling the body overboard. All the balance of the day, Wilson sat glaring at Clayton, in his eyes the gleam of insanity. Toward evening, as the sun was sinking into the sea, he commenced to chuckle and mumble to himself, but his eyes never left Clayton. After it became quite dark, Clayton could still feel those terrible eyes upon him. He dared not sleep, and yet so exhausted was he that it was a constant fight to retain consciousness. After what seemed an eternity of suffering, his head dropped upon a thwart, and he slept. How long he was unconscious he did not know. He was awakened by a shuffling noise quite close to him. The moon had risen, and as he opened his startled eyes he saw Wilson creeping stealthily toward him, his mouth open and his swollen tongue hanging out. The slight noise had awakened Jane Porter at the same time, and as she saw the hideous tableau, she gave a shrill cry of alarm, and at the same instant the sailor lurched forward and fell upon Clayton. Like a wild beast, his teeth sought the throat of his intended prey, but Clayton, weak though he was, still found sufficient strength to hold the maniac's mouth from him. At Jane Porter's scream, Monsieur Thuran and Spider awoke. On seeing the cause of her alarm, both men crawled to Clayton's rescue and between the three of them were able to subdue Wilson and hurl him to the bottom of the boat. For a few minutes he lay there chattering and laughing, and then, with an awful scream, and before any of his companions could prevent it, he staggered to his feet and leaped overboard. The reaction from the terrific strain of excitement left the weak survivors trembling and prostrated. Spider broke down and wept. Jane Porter prayed. Clayton swore softly to himself, Monsieur Thuran sat with his head in his hands, thinking. The result of his cogitation developed the following morning in a proposition he made to Spider and Clayton. "'Gentlemen,' said Monsieur Thuran, "'you see the fate that awaits us all unless we're picked up within a day or two. That there is little hope of that is evidenced by the fact 
that during all the days we had drifted we have seen no sail, nor the finest smudge of smoke upon the horizon. There might be a chance if we had food, but without food there is none. There remains for us then but one of two alternatives, and we must choose at once. Either we must all die together within a few days, or one must be sacrificed that the others may live. Do you quite clearly see my meaning? Jane Porter, who had overheard, was horrified. If the proposition had come from the poor, ignorant sailor, she might possibly have not been so surprised, but that it should come from one who posed as a man of culture and refinement, from a gentleman, she could scarcely credit. "'It's better that we die together, then,' said Clayton. "'That is for the majority to decide,' replied Monsieur Thuran. "'As only one of us three will be the object of sacrifice, we shall decide. Miss Porter is not interested, since she will be in no danger.' "'How shall we know who is to be first? asked Spider. "'It may fairly be fixed by lot,' replied Monsieur Thuran. "'I have a number of franc pieces in my pocket.' "'We can choose a certain date from among them. "'The one to draw this date first from beneath the piece of cloth will be the first. "'I shall have nothing to do with any such diabolical plan,' muttered Clayton. "'Even yet land may be sighted, or a ship appear, in time. "'You will do as the majority decide, "'or you will be the first without the formality of a drawing lots,' "'said Monsieur Thurant, threateningly. "'Come, let us vote on the plan.' "'I, for one, am in favor of it. "'How about you, Spider?' "'I am, too,' replied the sailor. "'It is the will of the majority,' announced Monsieur Thuran. "'And now, let us lose no time in drawing lots. "'It is as fair for one as for another. "'That three may live, one of us must die, "'perhaps a few hours sooner than otherwise.' "'Then he began his preparation for the lottery of death, while Jane Porter sat wide-eyed and horrified at the thought of the thing that she was about to witness. Monsieur Thuran spread his coat upon the bottom of the boat, and then from a handful of money he selected six franc pieces. The other two men bent close above him as he inspected them. Finally he handed them all to Clayton. "'Look at them carefully,' he said. "'The oldest date is 1875, and there is only one of that year.' Clayton and the sailor inspected each coin— to them there seemed not the slightest difference that could be detected other than the dates. They were quite satisfied. Had they known that Monsieur Thuran's past experience as a card sharp had trained his sense of touch to so fine a point that he could almost differentiate between cards by the mere feel of them, they would scarcely have felt that the plan was so entirely fair. The 1875 piece was a hair thinner than the other coins, but neither Clayton nor Spider could have detected that without the aid of a micrometer. "'In what order shall we draw?' asked Monsieur Thuran, knowing from past experience that the majority of men always prefer last chance in a lottery where the single prize is some distasteful thing. There is always the chance and the hope that another will draw it first. Monsieur Thuran, for reasons of his own, preferred to draw first if the drawing should happen to require a second adventure beneath the coat. And so, when Spider elected to draw last, he graciously offered to take the first chance himself. His hand was under the coat before a moment, yet those quick, deft fingers had felt of each coin, and found and discarded the fatal piece. When he brought forth his hand, it contained an 1888 franc piece. Then Clayton drew. Jane Porter leaned forward with a tense and horrified expression on her face as the hand of the man she was to marry groped about beneath the coat. 
Presently he withdrew it, a frank piece lying in the palm. For an instant he dared not look, but Monsieur Thuran, who had leaned nearer to see the date, exclaimed that he was safe. Jane Porter sank weak and trembling against the side of the boat. She felt sick and dizzy. And now, if Spider should not draw the 1875 piece, she must endure the whole horrid thing again. The sailor already had his hand beneath the coat. Great beads of sweat were standing upon his brow. He trembled as though with a fit of egg. Aloud he cursed himself for having taken the last draw, for now his chances for escape were but three to one, whereas Monsieur Thuran's had been five to one, and Clayton's four to one. The Russian was very patient, and did not hurry the man, for he knew that he himself was quite safe whether the 1875 piece came out this time or not. When the sailor withdrew his hand and looked at the piece of money within, he dropped fainting to the bottom of the boat. Both Clayton and Monsieur Thuran hastened weakly to examine the coin, which had rolled from the man's hand and lay beside him. It was not dated 1875. The reaction from the state of fear he had been in had overcome Spider quite as effectually as though he had drawn the faded piece. But now the whole proceeding must be gone through again. Once more the Russian drew forth the harmless coin. Jane Porter closed her eyes as Clayton reached beneath the coat. Spider bent, wide-eyed, toward the hand that was to decide his fate, for whatever luck was Clayton's on this last draw, the opposite would be Spider's. Then William Cecil Clayton, Lord Greystoke, removed his hand from beneath the coat, and with a coin tight-pressed within his palm where none might see it, he looked at Jane Porter. He did not dare open his hand. Quick, his Spider, let's see it. Clayton opened his fingers. Spider was the first to see the date, and ere any knew what his intention was, he raised himself to his feet and lunged over the side of the boat to disappear forever into the green depths beneath. The coin had not been the 1875 piece. The strain had exhausted those who remained to such an extent that they lay half unconscious for the balance of the day, nor was the subject referred to again for several days, horrible days of increasing weakness and hopelessness. At length, Monsieur Thuran crawled to where Clayton lay. "'We must draw once more before we are too weak to even eat,' he whispered. Clayton was in such a state that he was scarcely master of his own will. Jane Porter had not spoken for three days. He knew that she was dying. Horrible as the thought was, he hoped that the sacrifice of either Turan or himself might be the means of giving her renewed strength, and so he immediately agreed to the Russian's proposal. They drew under the same plan as before, but there could be but one result— Clayton drew the 1875 piece. "'When shall it be?' he asked Durand. The Russian had already drawn a pocket knife from his trousers and was weakly attempting to open it. "'Now,' he muttered, and his greedy eyes gloated upon the Englishman. "'Can't you wait until dark?' asked Clayton. "'Miss Porter must not see this thing done. We were to have been married, you know.' A look of disappointment came over Monsieur Thurand's face. "'Very well,' he replied, hesitatingly. "'It will not be long until night. "'I have waited for many days. "'I can wait a few hours longer.' "'Thank you, my friend,' murmured Clayton. "'Now I shall go to her side "'and remain with her until it is time. "'I would like to have an hour or two with her before I die.' "'When Clayton reached the girl's side, she was unconscious. "'He knew that she was dying.' 
and he was glad that she should not have to see or know the awful tragedy that was shortly to be enacted. He took her hand and raised it to his cracked and swollen lips. For a long time he lay caressing the emaciated, claw-like thing that had once been the beautiful, shapely white hand of the young Baltimore Bell. It was quite dark before he knew it, but he was recalled to himself by a voice out of the night. It was the Russian calling him to his doom. "'I'm coming, Monsieur Durand,' he hastened to reply. Thrice he attempted to turn himself upon his hands and knees, that he might crawl back to his death. But in the few hours that he had lain there he had become too weak to return to Thorin's side. "'You will have to come to me, monsieur,' he called weakly. "'I have not sufficient strength to gain my hands and knees.' "'Sapristi,' muttered monsieur Thorin. "'You are attempting to cheat me out of my weanings.' Clayton heard the man shuffling about in the bottom of the boat. Finally there was a despairing groan. "'I cannot crawl,' he heard the Russian wail. "'It is too late. You have tricked me, you dirty English dog.' "'I have not tricked you, monsieur,' replied Clayton. "'I have done my best to rise, but I shall try again. And if you will try, possibly each of us can crawl halfway. And then you shall have your winnings.' Again Clayton exerted his remaining strength to the utmost, and he heard Thoran apparently doing the same. Nearly an hour later the Englishman succeeded in raising himself to his hands and knees, but at the first forward movement he pitched upon his face. A moment later he heard an exclamation of relief from Monsieur Thoran. "'I am coming! I am coming!' whispered the Russian. Again Clayton essayed to stagger on to meet his fate, but once more he pitched headlong to the boat's bottom, nor, try as he would, could he again rise. His last effort caused him to roll over on his back, and there he lay looking up at the stars, while behind him, coming ever nearer and nearer, he could hear the laborious shuffling and the stertorous breathing of the Russian. It seemed that he must have lain thus an hour waiting for the thing to crawl out of the dark and end his misery. It was quite close now, but there were longer and longer pauses between its efforts to advance, and each forward movement seemed to the waiting Englishman to be almost imperceptible. Finally he knew that Thoran was quite close beside him. He heard a cackling laugh. Something touched his face, and he lost consciousness. Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapter 19, The City of Gold. If you're enjoying our story and you enjoy this show, please send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much, and that's how new listeners find us. Also, tell a friend about us. Thank you so much for being great fans. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.